0: My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, you know, I think he was my first interview, Um when I reached out for like a written interview for tamilculture.com but uh, interesting you know how I met Jay and so our guest for today is Jay Vasath- Raja. and um, the the way I found it was so random I, I follow in uh, a couple of newsletters and in one of them his uh, tweet got featured and obviously when I saw his last name I was like this guy's got to be Tamil okay. uh, so I reached out cold and you know he responded and you know we've kind of developed a relationship so um, that's kind of how you know we're here today. So Jay is a uh, you know a Toronto-based entrepreneur and investor, very low-key guy, but he's doing a lot of like amazing things. He's the founder of Atlas View Equity, and um, they buy cash-flowing software and asset light slash tech-enabled businesses. So you know he's like um trying to build the next constellation. Maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like that and you know, very Warren Buffett like. So Jay, thank you for uh jumping on the podcast and uh yeah, excited to have you here.
1: Thanks for the intro and thanks for having me, Ara.
0: For me when I chat with like a- interesting folks like yourself. I start at the beginning because I think, you know, things and especially I think we're both fathers, too. Um, So it's more of a curiosity question, just how your childhood or, you know, your formative teenage years, like how did that play a part in you, you know, developing a strong interest in kind of business, investing, entrepreneurship?
1: It's a great question. I come from a family of kind of small businesses. My dad had run a number of different small businesses, generating money and kind of building wealth for our family. And um, it, it, that that played a role, but I think maybe a little bit later on, like it kind of set my subconscious for a while. So I, I, I saw him grind, work long hours, kind of build something from nothing, provide for our family, and just kind of being able to see that as a possible kind of you know career path. That's uh, that that was that kind of set my subconscious for a while because I went down the regular kind of you know route of. Going to going to school, getting a degree, going into the corporate world, uh, and so it, it, it. And I didn't really become interested in business and investing till a little bit later in my. I mean, I guess it's all relative, but I didn't really take an interest into it probably until about my third year, fourth year of university, when I stumbled upon uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. Uh, you know, I read The Intelligent Investor and really got into like value investing and uh and and Peter Lynch as well Peter Lynch is uh was a mutual fund manager of uh at Fidelity and he had a crazy track record and he's wrote really some really good books too and it kind of um kind of resonated with me and you know but I I still went into kind of the corporate world and into into Deloitte uh, in their in the Toronto office there um uh, in their in their consulting division and and um and so I think like watching my dad kind of build these businesses had always kind of stayed in the back of my head, like, Hey, it's possible that you can actually kind of build something and build a business. And that is your career path. That's a possibility as opposed to kind of going down the uh, the, the kind of the corporate, you know, working your way up the corporate ladder and all that kind of stuff. And so um, how did it have not been for my dad seeing him do these things that uh, may, might seem extraordinary for, for people that have never seen uh, businesses being built from the ground up made a huge impact on my life and career and uh, and and so that's kind of how my, during my formative years, your question kind of during my teenage and formative years, um that 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 had a huge impact on you know how how my career progressed to to the state,
0: yeah, that's uh, interesting. I like the like the answer you kind of gave around the subconscious part was because I think of my story as you're talking, it seems like it's quite similar where like my dad had like a restaurant, he had like a convenience store in different parts. And um, I think you don't it's not like he told me she actually didn't want me to go into business because he's like being an entrepreneur is hard. I don't want that for you, but I ended up obviously doing it. Um, But I think just thinking back to his experiences, I think what I saw was, you know, and I saw him and my mom, because she helped in like the businesses as well, just work super hard, not really complain too much. Um, I saw the, you know, the freedom and flexibility obviously came at a cost, like it's not free. You know, I, I learned some good things and I learned some bad things, you know, in terms of, I don't know if your parents were the same way, but I've seen like, you know, certain people in terms of when they run businesses, you know, they make some money, but then it's like, you know they don't allocate it well or they don't like invest it well and you know they they're kind of stuck in like continuing on this business versus like i guess we have that platform that our parents gave us to kind of get a bit more information about all right when we start a business you know how can we exit from the business you know what are the options that we have um so yeah it's like subconsciously i just kind of saw that and i think over time i don't know for whatever reason, I gravitated towards it as well. So thanks for sharing that. Um, you talked about, you know, taking the typical path. You know, I think you worked at Deloitte for a little while before you kind of became a full-time investor. What did you do in school? And then I guess, you know, while you're working at Deloitte, how did you, you know, start thinking about, hey, more seriously about like investing because for me i'm a big believer in like the fire movement and like i think you know working in the the startup grind you know whether it's my own or like working at other like folks like my focus has always been like time as the most valuable resource versus like money and that's kind of what made me think about investing and so just curious about your thoughts
1: maybe i'll I'll walk back towards uh, university days um so in school um i I earned a, a bachelor of commerce degree Um, I got into accounting because it seemed like a natural thing to learn at the time. And because I I didn't know exactly what type of industry I want to go into and didn't really know like exactly, uh, um, you know, where in the business world I'll be. But I I figured that if I kind of understood accounting really well, which is kind of the language of business, I do well, no matter kind of which way I decide to go in the future. And, and, um, and so I did the whole CPA route at the time. It was called the CA chartered accountant, but during school, I actually, it's funny. I actually kind of had a little bit of like a side hustle going. I I I I learned how to kind of do HTML and, and, and CSS and started building websites. Um, a lot of them were like WordPress websites for uh, various organizations at the university. So like little student clubs and um, student societies, and uh, even had some like um, private clients. I got an accounting firm that I built a website for, and. Uh, and so I had a little kind of side hustle going while I was at uh, university in my third and fourth year. Um, but that kind of came to a grinding halt as I accepted an offer from from Deloitte. and um, um, it, and it was in their their Toronto office, so you know uh, it, it was really exciting because i got got to move to the city, downtown, kind of live the uh, the city life. I, I grew up in the suburbs, and so it was a pretty large change for me, but you know, super exciting change as well. Um, and, and as I was working at Deloitte, uh, you know, within about a couple years, I, 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 I knew that it, I, I liked what I was doing. Don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed the people I was working with at Deloitte, but I, I knew that I wanted to kind of start something and I wanted to do it earlier than later. Um, I, I knew at that point, the longer I kind of hold off on quitting and, and starting a business, the harder it's going to get and right? more commitments you'll have and, and, and the more, um, you know, used to a job and a salary you'd get. So I figured, you know, I got really nothing to lose at this point. Um, and I saved, saved up some money um, on the, on the weekends. I drive, uh, drive cabs for my, for my dad who ran a uh, um, a fleet of taxis and out of kind of our hometown. And so like I'd work at Deloitte during the week and um, I go home on weekends and drive cabs to, to earn more money and, and that way I have uh and, and earn more money to put towards a business or investments and so on and so forth and that way I had a bit more of a cash buffer uh, to to carry me along after I quit my job so I quit my job 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. And then started my first business, which was called client flows, a consulting, it was an agency. Basically what we did was run marketing and sales campaigns for a number of different clients started off kind of working with more smaller businesses, but then eventually we scaled up to large, um, work with very large companies. Um, we, we did, you know, everything from, we, we developed apps for our clients. We, uh, um, managed pay, uh, paid media campaigns. We managed email campaigns, uh, search engine campaigns, we did the whole thing, basically generating demand for uh, a roster of clients that we worked with. Um, you know, we worked with a lot of uh, tech enabled businesses, software, uh, worked with a lot of uh, medical device companies. Um, you know, we, we, we had a pretty uh, wide ranging kind of portfolio of clients. and ran that for about half a decade. And um, you know, several of my clients had really large successes. Like I saw one of my clients um, um while we were kind of running their campaigns, had a 450 million dollar IPO. Another one of our clients got acquired for uh two billion dollars. Um, you know, we got a few clients that raised a bit of uh capital, went through the whole, you know, venture capital route, Y Combinator, uh series A, all that kind of stuff. And um kind of seeing this, I realized like <laughs> I'm kind of in the wrong business here. I mean, earning consulting fees, uh is nice, but it's hard to scale, right? It's, 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 you're scaling kind of human uh, resources, human capital, which is kind of always has a, it's, it's a bit of a bottleneck. And I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, um, my true passion lies in investing. And wouldn't it be nice to kind of uh, actually own some of these companies or a piece of these companies or, you know, the entire company while doing a lot of these, the same kind of consulting playbook, uh, agency playbook on uh, a companies so I can actually capture a lot of the upside throughout this time. You know, I was building a bit of a real estate portfolio here in, in, in the GTA as well. Um, you know, I I stayed very close to the markets. Uh, you know, followed the stock market, a stock portfolio going, and um, followed a number of different companies. And so, like I I knew my my true kind of passion really was investing and, and managing investments. So kind of combining the two. So combining the passion for uh, for investing um, and and managing kind of money. And the operational expertise that I've kind of built up working with these uh, through through my agency, Client Flow, working with a lot of these clients, um, I kind of developed a thesis around uh, buyouts. So buying tech software, tech-enabled companies, uh, running the, um, the, the playbook uh, for, for adding value, which we can you know, get into in, um, l- later on, if you like, kind of what we do at Atlas View. And, uh, that's, that, that's how we kind of launched Atlas view. And, you know, we came together with a thesis, um, ra- raised a bit of capital, uh, and, uh, and we're kind off of often, and away done, done a couple of transactions here. And so, um, now I'm kind of in the position where a lot of the years of kind of working with clients, uh, developing that operational muscle, as well as, you know, ma- making investments, taking risks, making, uh, allocating money, um, to, to various asset classes, uh, really, really helped help kind of uh, carve the thesis here and help uh, build build out this view equity to to what it's become today. And so it was kind of a transition. So kind of from school accountant slash consultant to running my own consulting business to being like a full time uh, uh, investor and, you know, uh, private equity manager.
0: I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned a couple you mentioned kind of two of the, I guess, outside successes of your client base. When you're doing this consulting company client flow, um, how did you get these companies as your customers?
1: Good question. Um, it's just like how how really any sales process works. Um, it, a lot of calls, a lot of meetings, uh, referrals, networks. Um, a lot of these customers kind of came in through other customers as well. So we get referred to from one to another, and and you know one thing would lead to another, and we large we land larger and larger contracts. And so it's just like any other sales process, really. It's just you know picking up the phone doing proposals, um, you know, talking with your network, talking with your clients. Uh, I always say your clients are always kind of the, 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 I would say the clients are always the best source of your highest uh, quality leads, right? Because you're coming through a warm referral, you're a lot more likely to close on better terms.
0: Love it, okay. You know, you had this uh, great post that I I, I, I reference a lot, or I think about because, and you know, it's advice when people ask as well, I reference that article. And I think you talked about why the importance of kind of getting to the first hundred thousand dollars to start investing you talk about you know just you know what some of the things you mentioned like you worked at the you were kind of driving cabs on the weekend um and you know these are things that i don't think a lot of people are willing to do and i, I love the fact that you're willing to hustle scratch whatever you need to do to get that number uh just out of curiosity like like you know i, I read the article so i want allow you because i feel like you'll tell it better why that particular number is a good starting point to get into investing
1: <laughs> it's a it's a very arbitrary number, and truthfully, I only picked 100k because, um, I mean, one is relatable to my story, but two is because it's a it's a famous Charlie Munger quote. I'm sure you've seen it around. It's basically like you know you got a whole ass for your first 100k. After that, you could take the foot off the pedal a little bit. So the actual number doesn't it, it, it's it varies, right? And it's probably a bit more than 100k today if you account for inflation and cost of living and all that kind of stuff, but. I mean, it, let's say it's in the range of like 100 to like 500k or somewhere around there, right? Where you want to have that kind of money aside. Um, and the, the the logic is is, is basically you want to have escape velocity in your uh, in your kind of your investments or your you know your assets that you own. And What I mean by that is, so let's say you have zero assets, right? And so the only assets you're going to be able to put aside is you know say if you're let's say and let's say you're you're fully employed, you're working a full time job, you know you got to take money after taxes uh, and put it aside to invest in something right that sucks because that takes away from your actual enjoyment of living right so let's say if you make like 100k a year after taxes let's just say it's like 70k and then if you gotta you know you want to put aside like 30 right or like 20k that's 20k you could have spent on like whatever but you got to kind of build that first nest egg once you reach a point of escape philosophy, so you put money away into into the, say, you know, the stock market, real estate, whatever investment that will compound and grow over time, you get to a point where the your assets that you own appreciate more than whatever amount you could put, you can save, right? So, like if you had, let's say, you know, you put you you hauled ass, you saved every penny, you put it away, and you got to a point where you had like you know three hundred k in assets and um you know just kind of for ballpark number um let's say you put that into the S&P 500 you know maybe a portfolio of like REITs or or the Nasdaq and on average you're generating about 10% return per year you know over a long period of time obviously it's never a smooth 10% but on average right say if you had 300k in assets 10% you're de- you're technically saving 30k in that year without actually putting away any money and avoiding the the tax man right which is a huge Um, impediment to building wealth. And so, um, you know, like, so the difference between your assets appreciating 30K versus you having to take out 30K from your after-tax salary to put it away is huge, right? And so eventually that number will become 500K, then maybe eventually a million, you know, 20, like 10 years down the line, um, you know, you'll have maybe a, a million in change in assets. And at that point, you're saving like, you know, 100K per year without literally actually doing anything. Which that means it kind of maximizes your like if you're still you know earning a salary or business income or whatever it might be you can use more of that money to actually enjoy your life while your your assets technically save for you um, and then eventually you'll get to a point where you know if you have some investments that you know where part of the return is cash flow part of the return is appreciation um, the cash flow will actually pay for large expenditure, large, large amount of your personal expenditure, if not all of it. Right. And so that's a really good position to be in. So like the, the point of the kind of the, the quote, original quote from Charlie Munger, and then my kind of iteration of it is basically you want to hustle grind until you can get enough assets where you one reach uh, investment or savings uh, escape velocity. Um, where you know you're you keep you're saving technically each year without actually putting money away which is because of asset appreciation. And two is is the cash flow aspect of it too. I mean, if some of the returns come from cash flow, dividends, rental income, whatever it might be, um, paying for a large amount of your personal expenses, you know, you're you're at a point where you uh, your investments will kind of keep compounding and you won't run out of money, um, which I think is kind of the basic concept behind the fire movement that you had mentioned earlier. I'm not an expert on, on, on the thing. I'm kind of vaguely familiar with it, but it's kind of the similar concept. You want to kind of save a, a, a large enough next egg that continues compounding and you won't run out of money, right? You'll You'll keep kind of growing your wealth while living the lifestyle you want to live.
0: This episode is sponsored by Nobody. That's right, Nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. I like the escape velocity term, I guess, because of space and all, you know, just escaping an orbit. I, I like that, I, you know, because the orbit here is really, you're nine to five, like you're fixed in that until you're able to escape with, you know, this money and investing and mentality you develop. Um, I'm curious about investing because, you know, obviously you've done this for a while. For most people, I think they overthink things and they don't, you know, it's like going to, if you want to get healthy, people are like, I got to go to the gym five days a week, but no, really just start with going to the gym for five minutes. Yeah, Um, and it's like, I feel like that's like my philosophy with investing, which is maybe I didn't know, I didn't know about much about real estate investment or like crypto or like, you know, stock market, stock market investing or like businesses. But I feel like if you dip your toes slowly, you put a little bit of money in it. You have a little bit of skin in the game. You're incentivized to learn about that thing. And then obviously as you learn more, you feel more confident about that investment. You could put more and more money into that. I don't know if that's something that you agree with, not agree with, but just as you're speaking, is it something that popped into mind when i speak to a lot of people and i i just say like i don't when i learn about when i first do something i don't know much about it but i spend money or I like i do a little bit of i put a little bit of something into it so i feel like i need to now recoup that cost or learn something in return for you know putting in this money so this is how i feel
1: i like that attitude and i think that makes complete sense the key really is is consistency. You, I think you nailed it. The you want to get into a habit of regularly investing, looking at investments, whatever it might be, but it, it's it's how consistent you can be over a very long period of time, right? And so it's not a race, it's it's a marathon uh and you, you just need to get into a consistent habit.
0: Now I want to get to the meat of the matter, you know, um what we're here for, which is you know Atlas U Equity um you know I've been following, you know I follow your newsletter, I follow kind of Atlas View as well, and just kind of the updates there. So, for you know, people listening that don't, you know, we kind of briefly gave you an overview. But, do did you tell people what Atlas View Equity is? You know, um, you know what kind of things? You know, what kind of companies you guys look for? Like, what are some criteria of companies that you would consider purchasing? And uh, we'll start there.
1: So, Atlas View Equity, um, we we're a private equity firm, meaning that we uh, we we use both our money and investor money to uh, buy companies. Mostly software, but uh, we also look at tech-enabled uh, services as well and other sort of capital-like businesses. But our primary focus is definitely software. So criteria-wise, okay, so what do we look for? Um, the strategy we we take is generally what's called a buy and build in private equity. And so the what that means is we look to make one large platform investment into a specific industry. Uh, and then from there, we'll make that platform Will now acquire smaller add-ons and bolt-ons to to grow inorganically over a, a five-year period is our is our hold period um, before we look to exit. Um, what we look for is is so you know like I said primarily primarily software. We want to see that the software is sticky, has very loyal customers, um, has a, a degree of pricing power. Uh, you know you probably seen me talk about pricing power a lot and how important it is for a business to have it um and just to kind of clarify pricing power meaning being able to actually increase your prices year over year on your customers so without losing many or any of them um and and increasing it to an amount that you know far exceeds uh in inflation right so inflation is quite high these days so it's a pretty high bar to, to begin with and so um we look for businesses with pricing power um low ongoing capital expenditures. So in software parlance, that means um uh, mature businesses. So like that the product needs to be stable. Um the product needs to be kind of you know well tenured and and you know no major kind of uh rewrites are required or major kind of um uh, capital expenditures and in and R D uh required um you know we we, we we see we see a lot of uh we see a lot of software companies competing in verticals that are, or, you know, like horizontal fields that are so competitive that you need to be investing in obscene amount of R and D every single year, just to maintain parity with your competitors. And so we're not good at investing in those kind of businesses. It's kind of beyond our scope. We want to look at more mature, more verticalized businesses where um, the, the product is not changing massively year to year. It's, it's basically pretty stable kind of these boring niches, uh monday niches that um you know they power very critical functions for their customers and very critical um you know they're they're the mission critical have pretty high switching costs for their customers It's typically what we look for in a software business um and then from there we also we you know a nice to have for us would be a great team um you know we we don't mind having to rebuild a team and in fact a lot of the businesses we look at so we're we're in the lower middle market and the lower middle market means generally businesses under you know 50 million dollars in enterprise value uh and so a lot of these businesses that are under 50 million um generally have missing headcount uh missing executives like you usually don't have a cfo um they might have an owner operator who's kind of like the head honcho ceo they may have a um you know second in command uh maybe like a head of you know operations or whatever but um uh you know we'd like We'd like for a good team to come with the transaction, but we're okay if there's you know significant missing headcount. We're okay if the owner wants to transition out as well. We've done CEO kind of replacements and uh, transitions. Um, it's not a problem for us. Um, but the core thing we look for is is sticky customers. Like we want to know that your customers just you know they they swear by your your software product or your service you're offering. Um, it's it's they're not going anywhere anytime soon, and uh, and and the product is very very
0: stable. Got it. And I know that you guys have completed two acquisitions. As a sales guy, you know you think about funnels and just activity at the beginning of the funnel. So, on closing like two acquisitions, like how many companies did you have to meet with, or I guess deals did you have to look at before closing on two? Good question. We so we have a pretty high bar um, and high
1: standards in what we look for, and we're okay with only doing maybe one acquisition per year. Just to kind of preface, like um, our, our kind of acquisition strategy. Um, we want to, we want to wait for the, the, the fat pitch, right. That's a term that Warren Buffett uses quite, quite often is the, the no-brainer deal where this is going to be a home run. Um, and, and so we're, we have a, a fairly high standard. Uh, and so for these two, um, we probably looked somewhere in the range of maybe 150 to 200 deals. Um, and, uh, you know it's it's like sales basically they're they're leads right like 150 200 kind of leads come inbound you qualify them maybe like you know half of them might be qualified and then from there you know you you meet with either the founders or potentially there's a broker involved you meet with the brokers and you kind of understand what you know whether it's going to be a fit in terms of um you know your initial due diligence and um you know kind of understanding where the team the motivations are getting an understanding of their numbers and you you know you qualify them further from there uh and you and you do your pitch too right i mean like we're we're like it's it's competitive right like we have competitors like um you mentioned earlier in the call at constellation software but there's also a lot of private equity competitors in uh in our uh um arena as well that we that we compete against and so at the same time they're pitching us to business owners and brokers are pitching the sale to us we're pitching back to them saying this is why we you should um, work with us and it's almost like a demo, right? like a, just like a software sale or any other sale. It's just where it's kind of like a two-way pitch and then you know things look right we might you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a pretty quick turnaround like you know as soon as we get the right data, we could pretty much have an answer within like two days basically whether this makes sense or not and we'll send across like a high level like indicative offer. It's like a, basically like a term sheet on how we kind of approach the uh, the valuation. and if that looks good, we go into the uh, um, kind of like a, a two-week period where we do a bit more due diligence before we send out um, what's called an LOI, uh, letter of intent, and that's binding. So binding on the seller side, meaning they have to give us exclusivity for a, a period of time. It's usually around sixty days, so two months, for us to do the rest of the due diligence. Uh, um, you know, get the get the capital together, raise um, raise the debt if there's debt needed, and, and close the transaction more or less. Get the uh, the purchase agreement signed. Um, at the end of the, the the day here, so it's a long process, right? So I mean, those those those. Um, I know that the number kind of seems low, like two two acquisitions, but it's a combination of both uh, our kind of high standard and that it is a very long sales cycle, right? So if you, and I know, are I'm sure you know, for for your business there as well for continued care, like your your sales cycles is is probably very very long as well, right? And so it takes a, a while to get. The number of leads to run the number of demos, meet with the decision makers, get the proposal out. It's no different from us too. It's a, it's multiply that sales cycle by like two, and uh, that's how long our sales cycle is.
0: Yeah, I've had customers that are in closing like more recently that five years ago. I started talking to, so I know about long sales cycles. Yeah. Uh, so persistence is the name of the game. Um, I think of uh, uh, you know the question. You know, you're talking about the fat pitch. You know, the no, the no brainer. Uh, like deck or opportunity that you see for me when I hear that I'm like okay like if you identified it why isn't somebody else also pouncing on this or like is it because like you have a set of criteria that is unique and like a, a unique experience or viewpoint that allows you to identify these no-brainers to yourself but maybe for others it's not so much of a no-brainer because of unique information or access or something that you have like is that sound about right? Or like, because uh, if it's such a no brainer, like why didn't somebody else snap it up is what comes to mind for me. That that's, an, that's a fantastic question. And trust me, it's a question we ask ourselves all the time. Like,
1: why are we the lucky buyer when we're looking at a deal? Why did everybody else pass on this? right? Because I mean, we're, we're, we're the small guys and we're just getting started, right? And there's a lot more established players out there looking to buy businesses. And so like, why did we end up with this deal kind of thing, right? So it's a great question. And I think there's a few ways to answer that. One is, you know, different buyers see different angles in every deal, right? So all the people in front of us might have passed because they may not know something about that business that we may know just from seeing pattern recognition of other businesses that we see or expertise in the businesses that we're already in, the industries that we're already in. Um, So we may have some sort of informational edge that the other folks in the arena may or may not have, or there may be some sort of risk in that business that we understand well and can kind of manage the risk uh, accordingly or 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 eliminate the risk um, post-transaction after we buy the business uh, pretty well. And so the first kind of answer to that is we may have an informational edge, right? And when we look at a business, the second part is in the area that we play in is, is, is still pretty niche, right? And so like there's larger private equity firms, the middle market private equity firms that are kind of in like the hundreds of millions of dollars. And we're kind of in like the tens of millions, right? So we're, we're, we're kind of competing against, there are a lot of other buyers, but there's not that many of them. And a lot of them are actually small shops as well. And what ends up happening is sometimes, I've seen this happen a couple of times um, during a, a process that we were involved. The other natural buyers, other PE firms like us, they get tied up on other deals, right? They, they're they usually small shops as well. Like, like, you know, maybe like 10 people or less or 15 people or less. And if they're, you know, if they have like, they're working on three deals, four deals simultaneously. It could take out all the analysts and the, the the partners to be able to bid, to be able to move forward on a deal. So um, it, it's kind of funny that bandwidth actually becomes an issue in this end of the market, right? It, just, it never happens in the large in the large cap spaces, right? So like the large, massive private equity firms like Blackstone, and they have like infinite bandwidth, right? They'll never be like, oh yeah, we're too busy to pursue this deal. But in our end of the market, a lot of times, lower middle market private equity firms like like Atlas View and you know our peers and whatnot, they end up becoming too busy to go forward on deals. So we end up becoming the lucky buyer, being at the right place at the right time. The last piece of information, um, the piece of kind of uh, reason why we end up winning deals over other potential uh, suitors is a lot of times, like we we built relationships with founders too, so we get a lot of direct inquiries. Um, And, you know, we, we, we get, you know, folks like yourself are uh, with software, own software businesses. And, you know, we've kind of kept in touch over the years. uh, And, and, you know, we get we build that direct relationship where that that level of trust is established. And, um, and it's, it's a daunting task, right? I mean, like, if you you know, ever embarked on selling your business. It's just like so much like information. And it's usually it's usually a first time transaction for the the owner, the founder, they don't not really sure what's going on kind of thing. So having trust when you start that process with someone is really key. And so, um, you know, we've been in scenarios where the you know founders kind of come to us directly and said, Hey, Jay, you know, love what you guys do, love the transparency you guys operate in, you know, also align with your philosophy. Would you like to take a look and see what my business might be worth and whether you'd be interested in buying it uh, and they haven't been talking to anybody else kind of thing, right? And so that happens from time to time as well. And so, Kind of those three ways are, are the ways that we kind of end up winning deals. Uh, but even then, you know, we still always ask ourselves, like, why are we the lucky buyer? Why did we end up winning this opportunity over all the other smart buyers, more experienced buyers out there? Um, it, it is always kind of a fear, but you got to be careful because, you know, you don't want to get too wrapped up into it, right? Like, because you could pretty, you could basically, this, these are small businesses we're looking at, and they all have problems, right? They all, every single small business on the outside looks nice and polished but once you actually look in they all have problems they all have you know things they're missing things held together by elastics massive glaring risks and all that kind of stuff you could talk yourself out of buying any business like it's it's really easy to say oh there's no way this is too risky everybody else passed so you don't want to be into finding yourself in a position it's a delicate balance you don't want to be finding yourself in a position and saying Oh, everyone else passed on this business. I'm going to pass on it too because they must be smarter than me, and I'm just not going to. Because so if you have that kind of attitude, you'll you'll never get a deal done, right? And so, um, so it's, it is a delicate balance.
0: Yeah, I think of it like you're you're saying. Because like somebody hearing your answer might be like it sounds like a bunch of fluff, but I think it's actually true, the relationship part, because I think of like real estate. Um, there's so many transactions that happen, you know, like why do some people that are smaller players versus bigger players that have a big name get deals? And I think it's like a number of things, like you said, like bandwidth, relationships. I think that's the biggest one. I think when, especially with the business, I'm thinking like as a business owner, if I'm selling my business from experience or like just, you know, talking to people, uh, I know that it can be a very challenging and time consuming process where you know, you might think you're gonna be able to sell your company and then, you know, this the buyer takes you on a wild ride or like doesn't actually have the funds to close, or you know, there's a host of reasons why something doesn't work out. It's you know, when you're building a business, when you're running a business, it's one thing because it takes up a lot of mind and just resources to run a business. Then you have to think about selling your business. That's a separate process you have to run in conjunction or in parallel to this, you know, running and selling your company at the same time, which is kind of paradoxical in a way. So yes. you don't want to do it too many times. So especially if you've gone through bad experiences, if, you know, someone like yourself or like there's other companies, like you said, peers where, you know, because everyone's going to tell you, hey, I'll close fast or like, you know, we'll we'll give you, you know, if we give you a number or an LOI, like we're going to actually close on it versus like change their mind later. For if, as a business owner, personally, I'd want to hear, hey, uh, give me a an evaluation and stick to it. And number two, like, do you have the funds to, close on it. And number three, will you ruin what I've built? Because, you know, uh, it depends on how you view your business. But like, if you put in a lot of time, especially if it's your first business, a lot of time, sweat, equity, all of that stuff. Yeah, you know, you're getting you're getting chips off the table by selling. But if the person buying it is going to screw it up, that also ruins your reputation in a way that, you know, you built something and you know that it was working well. And now this person or company took something and ruined it. So exactly what you said, I, I buy it. So just... Just like just speaking out loud as a from a business owner point of view, um, everything made sense makes sense. Now thinking from a sales perspective, you know, the pipeline. We kind of, you know, talked about the end and like some of the middle, but right at the beginning in terms of building up the actual pipeline of like, you know, you talked about relationships and all this. I guess two things. I know you also have like a personal newsletter, um, and you know, like you're quite active on Twitter. And then, you know, like us, like, you know, we meet in person, you you know, you you spend quite a bit of time on phone calls or in-person meetings. It was interesting how you kind of structure your week. How much of your time every week do you spend on that front part of the funnel? And, you know, how does your personal newsletter or Twitter feed into that? Yeah,
1: great, great questions. Um, OK, so how much of my time on the front part of the, of the funnel? Quite a bit these days. I would probably say we probably spend about maybe 70 percent of our time. Um, Looking at new opportunities, maybe 30% of our time uh, managing, you know, maybe 20% of our time managing uh, uh, existing portfolio companies, board meetings, all that kind of stuff. And maybe 80% actually uh, chasing new opportunities. And a lot of those opportunities actually are for portfolio companies, right? They're they're add-on acquisitions for for each of our portfolio companies. And so we're kind of regularly assessing potential add-ons as well. Um, and so, uh, newsletter, um, it's been good to build an audience. Um, I've, it's been pretty much the best networking I've ever done. Uh, you know, it's like basically leverage networking, right? Cause then you can attract the people you want to, depending on the type of content you put out, you attract the people you want to, to meet. Right. And so when I mean, you follow my newsletter, I believe, and, and I think you're, you're, you're on Twitter too. And so you'll see that my my content's kind of pretty niche. It's around small business, it's around investing, buying businesses, Things like that. Right. And so uh, so as a result, I end up kind of meeting the right people through my newsletter um, and uh, and, and my Twitter as well. Lots of uh, people in lower middle market, private equity, lots of small business owners, um, you know, lots of uh, investors, capital partners that are kind of uh, aligned with our strategy as well Um, in terms of kind of pipeline of deal flow. There really is no silver bullet. It's literally like any other sales process, right? You got your inbound leads and you got your outbound leads, right? So um, um, a, a colleague I work with, Ryan, uh, Ryan Kahn, who's a principal at Atlas View Equity, he, um, he runs our deal sourcing process. And so he's kind of the, the top of the funnel to the mid, mid-range funnel, bringing deals to the investor committee. And for us to kind of review and, and uh, either sign off on or turn down. Um, you know we're 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 pretty much on on phone calls like ar- around around the clock, right? And so um, so that's kind of our outbound process. like we, we we you know make outbound outreaches, cold calls, cold emails, talk directly to founders. We talk to a lot of brokers as well. A lot of kind of lower middle market investment bankers that are trying to sell a company their client and whatnot. Where we're you know we're speaking to many of those folks there on the inbound side. Like I mentioned, the the newsletter um, and the, uh, the the Twitter following definitely helps. You know, we get our we get inbound leads. Uh, not not a ton. Not more. I I definitely would like more for sure. But we definitely get like we we I get quality leads coming in. Uh, a, a, a handful of a months at least, and so it's it's definitely been super helpful. But it's been more kind of networking as well. Like I I meet a lot of peers and a lot of other kind of business buyers through my my Twitter following, my newsletters, and we kind of exchange notes. Like, hey, what are you paying for the, this, these these kind of businesses? Like, how you know, how are you kind of managing your portfolio companies? What types of management systems are in place? Like, what types of um, how are you structuring your deals? And like that, like talking with peers and kind of getting that kind of uh, intel um is is super helpful and, and I've pretty much met 100% of them right through Twitter and my newsletter right like I cuz I don't I don't come from a general kind of private equity or finance background right and so it's not like I have a huge network that I've met through my uh regular work my prior work um in in kind of buying businesses and, and operating them uh, operating acquired businesses uh, and managing an LP money as well like LP limited partner investor money um for those kind of unaware with unaware of uh, kind of private equity terms and so kind of meeting those peers through um through my newsletter and and Twitter have been really really helpful
0: when you know when you say you buy a company it's like you know I think of like buying real estate as well it, you know it sounds like oh how do you just buy a company so like in terms of financing like similar to property um, how do you actually get the funds to purchase a company um, is it like you're buying it in like all cash is there like some kind of financing what are the different financing options did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so we use we we have a core group of LPs um, investors. They're they're kind of large fund of funds and uh, and family offices that kind of make up for a large chunk of the equity part. And we also use some debt as well. Um, For most of our transactions, we try to close as much cash at close as possible. Uh, Unless there's something really strange or really kind of some sort of risk we need to mitigate in the business. Like you could probably, a founder can expect somewhere around at least 80% cash at close, Um, maybe even potentially 90%. Uh, And so the, the remainder generally is either a, You know, we ask for either a seller note. So, you know, it's kind of a deferred payment over, you know, X amount of of years or months or whatever it might be, uh, or potentially a a equity rollover. And that is a lot of founders actually find that attractive because they actually want to work with the private equity firm and get a second exit, right? So, um, you know, they get what the first bite of the apple when we buy 90% of their business and then Um, and then they, they keep the, they, they reinvest the 10%. And so if, if transaction has, you know, 50% debt, 50% equity, and they reinvest 10%, they actually end up owning 20% of the business. If, you know, just kind of math, um, and then they can have another large exit five years down the line because we have a, our, our investors, fund of funds and family offices and all that kind of stuff, uh, have a five-year hold period, right? And so we need to kind of return capital in five years. What does that mean? We need to actually have another liquidity event five years down the line. So a founder that reinvests the money back into the company that they know very well and are in good hands with, with our kind of um, uh, track record here. And so we, we, we roll that forward and we look to kind of get them another exit uh, uh, five years down. So that's kind of typically how we structure deals. We avoid earnouts. So earnouts um for those kind of unfamiliar are kind of the their contingent payments based on the performance of the business and a lot of private equity firms use earnouts, a lot of strategics even strategic acquirers, so competitors or larger kind of, you know, um, companies when they offer uh, uh to acquire a business they offer they often embed an earnout which in my opinion kind of Annoying for both parties, like it's it's yeah, it kind of de-risks the transaction from the private from the buyer standpoint, but it gets complicated because you got to track the earnout, and then you risk like disagreements or disputes, which um, happens very frequently, right? Because like uh, if the earnout's based on revenue projections or EBITDA projections, like the founder might have disagreements on you know how exactly it's calculated or how. um you know, how the company's being run and they may not have control over that how the company's being run. Because after you sell, control the business, you're kind of at the mercy of the uh, new buyer to basically make you that earn out, right? I mean, it's a small business, right? The, the people that run the business make a huge difference, right? It's not like you're buying like, uh, you know, like Google or Disney, like you're buying like a, you know, small software company where like the 20 people, 30 people that are running the company make a massive difference, right? And so um, you're kind of at the mercy of the buyer. So we we avoid earnouts because we don't like complexity. We kind of want, we want to keep it simple. Um, either we we pay you, you know, most cash at close and then kind of maybe a couple more payments down the line in a year, or you can reinvest in your equity and we can kind of work together as partners and we sell uh, together in, in five years uh, down the line it's especially attractive for founders actually want to stay on because not a lot of, not all founders want to kind of sell and retire. Um, a lot of founders we speak to actually want a capital partner to come on, you know, buy out and buy the majority stake and then keep working um, to, to get a second exit down the line. Maybe they need help in some of the areas that just aren't experts in, for example, uh, m and Right. And so, um, let's say they've always wanted to acquire competitors and they've always wanted to acquire suppliers or whatever it might be adjacent businesses, but they didn't have one, the expertise to do it because it's a pretty complicated skill set. Um, that's not, you know, that's, you kind of need some experts involved. And number two is maybe they didn't have the capital to do it. Right. Cause obviously it requires raising both equity and debt to execute uh, acquisitions. So a lot of founders say, Hey, Um, we'd love to partner with you as capital partner and uh, you help us kind of execute M&A and we'll still kind of run the show and run the operations. And you come in and and help us kind of acquire competitors and consolidate the industry a little bit. Um, It's attractive because then founders that rolled over their equity own a big chunk of the business, right. And they'll have another uh, um, exit down the line. And so that's kind of how we approach kind of structuring funding cash at close, how much we kind of pay up front, how much we pay later. And, um, and at the end of the day, you know we we want to be as founder friendly as possible, right? Like I'm a founder myself, I worked with founders my you know entire life. you know my dad's a small business owner. um you know I, I I totally get it. I can empathize like this is your baby that you've built over x amount of years and and building a successful business by the way it's 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 an incredible feat, right? Like so many businesses don't go anywhere. they fail, you know they're 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 not acquirable even. and so if you've got built a business that's you know uh, a, a decent um enterprise and uh as is you know people want to buy it you should be very proud of yourself right it's 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 not an easy feat and we 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 at atlas view we respect that we respect founders we want to give them the best offer possible we want to give them the best terms possible and um and if they want to continue working with us we want to make it as uh um you know as enjoyable as possible for them as well
0: yeah just hearing you talk i mean this is uh Part of your earlier earlier conversation around like the newsletter and Twitter, just attracting the people and energy that you kind of want around you. Like for me, I can talk about this stuff all day. I'm like a business nerd. Like I, I love kind of getting into the weeds. I know maybe not everyone's like that. I don't think a lot of people are. Um, so that's one thing. It's kind of attracting the the energy. You talked about um you know, why founders would not necessarily want to just sell and just retire. Like I think about myself, which is for me, the attractiveness of selling is getting some chips off the table because it's like poker, right? Like until you actually cash out of the casino, like you can still lose lose everything, right? So just getting some money off the table, but having somebody, like you said, that can fill in the gaps, you know, operationally, knowledge-wise, that can kind of, you know, like you said, you get some risk kind of, uh, you know, off the table, you got some money for all the sweat equity you put in. And then, like you said, with somebody behind you, you can get a potential second exit, and that's happened yeah. many times. I've talked to many founders that that's actually happened, so um that that makes sense um
1: and it's funny i and we always ask because like, I'm always curious right so sub you know some of these are pretty large check numbers right like um, for for the exit um money that the founder will just get they they go from earning kind of a salary or maybe some dividends and all of a sudden it's just like a big cash liquidity event and I always ask them like what do you plan to do like' just curious what well, what's your investment strategy what do you plan to kind of do with that money right and some of them are okay. Well, equities, bonds, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, and I always say, why not invest just a chunk of it back into the company that you know really well, right? And, and work with partners that you could trust, and work with us, and and you know, you'll have a if you want to actually work in the business, like we could we could help facilitate as well. But you know, as kind of like a portfolio allocation strategy, like let's say you put. A chunk of that in stocks, ETFs, whatever. A chunk of that in like REITs or real estate. A chunk of that in like bonds. Why not put a small chunk in 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 private ac- equity, a company that you pretty much know like the back of your hand? You have run this business, and you built it, so why not still own a piece of it, right? And so, um, so it, that that resonates well too, right? I mean, like, R you as a business owner, right? You obviously know your business really, really well, and you know that they come will come when you want to sell your business, like, uh, um, and so. You know, why not keep like a, a, a chunk of it and, and kind of capture some more upside down the down the uh, down the road?
0: Yeah, and I think the the other part of it is, you know, you have an opportunity as a founder. I think to alleviate yourself potentially it depends on how you structure the deal. Where all the things that maybe you had to do, but you don't, you didn't want to do, is taking away time and focus. Like, say it's like you know operational stuff, or say you were really good and you enjoyed sales. Maybe now you can just focus exclusively on that, and that's kind of the the biggest way to kind of you know um multiply yourself and everything else kind of you can work with the acquirer to you know put something in place so that hey this is the best way to structure the company moving forward so we can go from x number of dollars or this profitability to this much in like 2 years so i think it's just like a real opportunity to kind of reset because just like in any relationship or this dynamic if you've been running a company with like group of people and over time you know it's like any relationship like you need to maybe sometimes bring in new people or just you know uh, you need to exit that relationship as well so um, that's one. And, you, you know, the, the conversation about earnouts. Yeah, I completely agree, because I, I think about this example, I think even in the movie business where a lot of stars get paid out based on like, you know, box office performance. And I think there was a case with um I forgot who the actress was, but and there's just a lot of conversation around like you could gamify if you're the buyer. Saying hey, it's based on performance, but you know, say if it's on profit, you can gamify profit by padding the expenses so that you know you're not you don't have to pay somebody um, the money they're due because you're just saying hey, you know what? Instead of making ten million dollars in profit, you actually only made two because they you know they added a bunch of expenses that the you know the the person who sold their company has no control over versus like something like revenue or like I, I don't know some other number that's harder to kind of gamify. So yeah. like you said, it's very tricky um, once you get into earnout. So it's ideally to ideal to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah, uh, so completely agree. And, you know, something I want to get into is now that I guess the final part is, you know, you have acquired this company. What's Atlas View's kind of playbook after you've acquired a company? Like, what do you do to help grow the company and like move forward towards, you know, exit or like maybe potentially holding the company? I don't know.
1: Yeah, great, great, great question. Um, So we have a pretty well-defined playbook. And for those kind of interested in as much detail as possible, we always try to put out as much of it on our, our blog, um, atlasview.substack.com. Um, or just outletsfoo.com, just click on blog. And we try to be as transparent as possible on what we're going to do with the business post acquisition. So the first thing we do in the first maybe six to 12 months is we focus on the operational part of the business. So what we call organic growth and organic initiatives. Generally speaking, most of these businesses have missing headcount. So when we, when we, when we're kind of underwriting our, our models, like, okay. So this business is cash flowing X amount. We actually decrease it in the first year because we've got to hire folks. we got to hire the platform needs to be very, very strong right so it needs to have a really good ceo if it does not already it needs to have a really good cfo if it does not already and these are software companies so it needs to have a really good cto if it does not already right and so it needs to have a good head of sales a good head of marketing and all those people cost a decent amount of money right and so when we are kind of putting together how much capital is required to buy a business we we take into consideration those headcounts because generally speaking as i mentioned they're usually missing right for a small business um uh, they they're usually um, some some missing headcounts around there uh we so kind of moving along the the growth initiatives the so beyond hiring we want to do best practices around kind of sales marketing uh implement the right strategies um you know we're a big fan of direct response marketing and so things like you know search uh email seo uh, direct outbound um, um to to generate more top of the funnel and you know it's it's as you you probably know yourself, it's basically a math equation, right? So we have all the due diligence uh prior to the transaction. We could see how many leads that we're generating, how many of them are converting into demos, how many of those demos are converting converting into paying customers. We kind of know where things can be optimized, um, and, and kind of uh um, taken kind of to the next level. So that's on kind of on the sales and marketing front. Um, the next, which is my personal favorite front, is definitely the optimizing the cash flow of the business. And so there's just so many things in the business that you could do to optimize cash flow, and I talk about them quite frequently on both my personal blog and our Atlas View blog. Things like optimizing the cash conversion cycle, um, you know, um, tightening your 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 um, your AR and the amount of uh, invoices outstanding, stretching your accounts payable, um, you know, not paying for th- a lot of things in advance. Like um, we see so many software companies paying for. You know, like like massive bills, like like they're you know they're hosting or Snowflake uh, or database or like in advance and to, in order for in order to take advantage of like a ten percent discount, right? And so just think about the cost of capital nowadays for a company like that. It's probably going to exceed ten percent. Um, you know, like we're 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 looking to generate more than that. Right for for the investments that we make, so it doesn't make sense to save ten percent by paying an entire year's worth of bills up front, right? And so you might as well pay that over time and pay more, but have that cash necessary for us to to um uh, execute on other initiatives where we'll earn more than ten percent reinvesting that cash. Um, and then finally, and um, this is also actually probably my this is tied for uh, my favorite as well is is pricing price increases and price optimization. And what we found, Aura, is that a lot of business owners, especially in the software space, right? Um, the mission critical, vertical niche software, they just don't exercise the pricing power that they have, right? Customers love their products, powers their business, but they've had the same pricing for the last like five years, uh, despite inflation and all, you know, all sorts of stuff going up. So we implement regular price increases as soon as we take hold we usually do a bump right away and then we do annual increases um you know something nothing too aggressive but somewhere in the range of like 10 percent per year on an ongoing basis usually baked into the contract so if it's like a multi-year contract we'll have escalators um, we might even optimize the pricing actually how the pricing tiers work right so sometimes the pricings don't tier doesn't make sense like we want to tie you to to value like how are the customers gaining value is it uh, you know, are they paying per user, paying per gigabytes of data? Are they paying for whatever it might be, right? Like, how are they using it? Like, how are the, the, the customers using the product? And how do we tie pricing to value so that um, it makes more sense? The, the people that are getting the most value out of the product are are paying for more 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 of the money, right? And so we optimize prices um, right away. It's one of the best ways to add value in a business. Um, you know, I've talked about it extensively on my blog. Um, to, to, you know, increasing prices. And I've talked about it with you too, Ara, we've, you know, last time we got together that increasing prices year over year, it's just, it's just, it just makes, it's a healthy business practice, right? It, t- it shows you which customers are, 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 um, you know, how sticky your customers are and what the, the, the economic potential of those customers are um, and realizing the maximum amount of economic potential of your customers is a, is a very great thing. Right. And so, um so we spend the first year, doing all those organic changes, right? So six to 12 months where, you know, all all these things are implemented, we got the platform strong, and it's ready, and we have a good kind of base to go do acquisitions. So years two to five, we focus on helping management generate new deals, negotiate deals, structure opportunities and close uh, add on acquisitions, oftentimes competitors, adjacencies, maybe there's a there's a, Another adjacent software that would just be a no-brainer acquisition. Maybe they they work through a channel partner or whatever it might be that potentially might be up for sale. And so we help management um, you know, get a pipeline of targets, uh, you know, negotiate and send out offers and and help kind of run the due diligence process and all that kind of stuff, years two to five. Right. And that's where a lot of the, a lot of the founders or the management that 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 want to stay on and work with us, this is kind of where they get really excited. They want to kind of, you know, buy grow their business inorganically um as, as a faster clip right and so you know let's say like for, for yourself ara like how hard it is to generate like a hundred thousand dollars of extra annual recurring revenue right like but like you know sometimes there's cases where you can actually just buy a competitor and it's actually cheaper and it'll cost you less money to generate that extra hundred thousand dollars in revenue than it is you know investing it in marketing sales r&d um where the you know not to mention that may not only will, will the cost may exceed um, the you know the, the the value from that 100k contract or whatever, but um, it's also pretty uncertain too. Like it's fairly uncertain. Whereas when you're buying a business, you know kind of roughly exactly what you're getting, right? You're, there's there's the contracts, customers, employees, and all that kind of stuff. And so um, we found that M and A and doing like a handful of acquisitions after the platform is pretty much one of the best ways to add value here. And then year five comes up. Um, you know, we, we we hire an advisor, a banker to help us represent the business um for, for for and put it up for sale, right? And so the business by that point will have grown both a little bit organically, but a lot through acquisition and kind of integrated it nicely into kind of one larger platform. And we look to kind of sell to either a strategic or a larger PE fund down the line. The idea is, you know, we're in the lower middle market, kind of putting these kind of businesses together. Um, there's there's um uh there's a threshold in which uh, where you cross in ARR or EBITDA uh, where larger private equity funds uh, get interested. So they look at the business and say, Oh, wow, now that's big enough for us to get interested. And when that happens with the, the hundreds of millions, the hundred million dollar, couple hundred million dollar uh, private equity uh, um, funds out there, um, that's when you get a, a multiple lift. Right. And so now you get a little bit more of a competitive process Um, you know, the business is uh, institutional grade, it has executives that we've hired, we brought in, it's got multiple different offerings, either grown organically or through acquisition, and it becomes a lot, it becomes very attractive for a larger institutional buyer. So that's kind of what happens in the, you know, roughly five year period after we close a deal. Yeah, this is
0: fascinating. Um, I guess two things. One is, Yeah, the pricing power, one of the things you kind of kept harping on, and I I see the value of and something to like for me to like seriously focus on is pricing power because, uh, you know, that example I think you gave and a few others, like the seeds candy that Warren Buffett, like, you know, how much pricing power they had, which is like crazy. So I think a lot of people are just scared to kind of increase prices when you can, but obviously there's a risk associated with that. So you should be pretty confident that your product is good enough to withstand that, especially like, you know, depending on the current like climate and type of business. But the second thing is, as you're kind of talking about, you know, your model of selling at year five I just think of you know sports analogy of you know like maybe baseball where you know you have how this market looks like to me is you know you have companies that like really that buy companies I know companies that purchase you know companies in the 1000 AR 2000 AR and then you have like you know you go you go up to the next level you have like micro acquire which focuses on the next level and then you have someone like yourself that kind of is that next tier and then you have like these you know these bigger P firms so it's almost like um you know, baseball, where you scout somebody at a really young age, you see that they have talent um, and then you kind of help develop them. You put money into them and then they move up to like, you know, in baseball, uh, you know, A level or double A or triple AA A. And eventually they get to the pros where they get paid the big bucks. Um, so <laughs> that's, <a good> analogy. <laughs> so that's, that's immediately what I think of, which is like you bought you're buying this asset that you think is a no brain. It's like the fat pitch. It's a no brainer. Um, You put resources into it because it's like maybe let's just say hypothetical. it's like a a one or two million or $10 million ARR. But then you with what you your playbook, you guys get it to like 50 or whatever it is, 60. And now that next level above is like, hey, uh, I see what you guys are doing. Let me take that off your hands and you guys get the chips off the table. So, uh, yeah, it's just very fascinating. Uh, I guess the question there, as you know, you said all that is I only I only bring this up because I saw this. I think you posted on Twitter recently that you went to a talk with um, Mark Leonard from uh, Constellation Software. He's a Canadian Canadian company. I think people don't know that. And he's a founder CEO. He's probably one of the most elusive people on the Internet, because I think there's like one or two pictures, maybe. Um, And he's a super underrated, you know, entrepreneur probably has. I'm going to give him the Ph.D. of like, you know, in the art of patiently buying and holding software companies. Um, And obviously, I know you're a big fan. Um, I'm curious, is he someone you're looking to emulate in terms of like that buy and hold? Because you talked about, because you have maybe, I guess, external investors that, you know, you're promising a certain return and maybe the exit's the only way to, or the sale of a company you buy in year five, maybe the only way to do it. But is your ideal to eventually be completely buy and hold or is, you know, selling also something you're going to continue to do? Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free?
1: Good question. Um, so first I want to say I'm definitely a huge fan of um, of Mark Leonard and Constellation Software. I think he's built a, a very unique, like, once-in-100-year a type company. I don't think there's anything like Constellation Software out there. Uh well you know there's a few kind of copycats but I don't think there's oh, any I want to any... add
0: some I want to add something about Mark Leonard as you try to interrupt but I mm-hmm. the other crazy thing like you said the once in a lifetime I think when I talked to somebody there it's like I think he's built this over 20 years and like compounded the business by buying and holding these SaaS companies there is apparently like secretaries there that have worked there since the beginning that at this point now they still work there but they're like millionaires on paper because of like you know they got stock and all that so just a side note continue
1: <laughs> i mean they're probably they're probably millionaires liquid right because public companies so they're they, they're uh, probably
0: wealthier than the entrepreneurs that get their companies <laughs> bought that i you might laugh but i'm like it's probably yeah. true i i don't even i'm guessing that's my guess
1: <laughs> yeah and, and so so a couple quick comments on on consolation i think they're they're They've built, he's built an incredible company. Honestly, I don't think there'll be like a company like that in a, you know, another several decades, Um, a lot of copycats, but they'll never kind of come close to the real Constellation Software, in my opinion. There's a few things that fascinate, but here's what, here's what fascinates me about Constellation Software. First and foremost, they built a decentralized acquisition engine, which is incredible to me. So they have like first year, like you go, you get a job at Constellation Software right and within a couple of years you're you're running your own deals you're literally finding and closing deals like allocating capital right like that's a pretty insane thing like a lot of people kind of compare um mark leonard and Constellation to like like buffett or, or berkshire but in my opinion it's way different like at Bu- berkshire buffett munger and like his core staff i forgot what their their names are they have a, a, a lieutenant a couple of lieuten- lieutenants there and whatnot all it's 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 centralized capital allocation, right? They're, they're pretty much making all the decisions here. A constellation software, you got like second and third year uh, M&A folks with not much experience prior making acquisition decisions, right? All across the world, not just in Canada, in Europe, in Asia, in, uh, or maybe not, I can't remember if it was Asia, but definitely Africa, Europe, South America, and, and North America, um, and Australia too, that are on the ground buying up these companies that are Relatively small, right? I mean, they're usually uh, I heard that is the average transaction size, like six, seven, eight mil ARR, right? And so, um, so that's incredible. I, I I honestly cannot think of another business that's that's even remotely like that in any other industry where there's like folks ground level acquiring like companies, like like it's 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 quite just it, it like I can't drive the point home enough how unique constellation software is because that's a very difficult task. To train someone that's just not, um, that's, you know, someone in, in, in experience. And um, so the machine, the system, the machine, the capital allocation machine that Mark Leonard and other folks at Constellation Software has built, very, very unique, very um, commendable. Do what? Am I trying to emulate Constellation Software? The answer to that is definitely no, right? Like I, I I draw a lot of inspiration from them and I've read, you know, all of Mark Leonard's. Uh, letters if you haven't read them by the way highly recommend them Uh great approach to kind of capital allocation um, measuring performance and and you know uh, a bunch of other kind of interesting tidbits around business and investing and allocating capital so definitely recommend them um, they're inspiration for us uh, we play a lot in the same arenas but we just have completely different strategies right like we are private equity, we have to buy businesses with the intent on selling, improving and selling. Right. And I know private equity kind of gets a bad rap over like, you know, they're just like buying businesses and like, you know, putting like a a lick of paint paint on the, on the front door, and then just kind of flipping it to the next investors. I don't think it's like that at all. There's probably some players that are out there, but they just won't last. Right. I mean, like the real value, private equity needs to create real value in order to make money, especially in this day and age, it's ruthlessly competitive. Um, yeah, so I think the majority of businesses that are purchased by private equity, especially in the lower middle market, right? Like, you know, the under hundred million dollars in transaction size. Um, you need to add serious value. You need to actually improve the business. You need to actually put the right people in, you need to actually put the right initiatives in place and build a a formidable enterprise to to um to actually make money in this business. And so, so we, we defer in that. Yeah, we have overlap in terms of the types of businesses we buy. We look at a lot of vertical software, a lot of sticky software. Uh, in fact, one of our portfolio companies actually operates in a vertical that Constellation Software operates in as well. And so like um, it's, it's, there's a bit of overlap there, but in terms of strategy um, and kind of how we make money versus how they make money, they're very, very, very different. But you know, some of the other kind of, people that I draw inspiration from as well like obviously you know the the ones that we've already mentioned like Buffett and Munger huge obviously inspirations I've read all of their the there's a um a collection of uh, um essays or you know their annual letters that's uh the, it's it's in a book format definitely recommend anyone reading that it's a great kind of mini MBA to to business and investing you may have talked in, you may have seen me um speak about it on my blog but Nick Howley at uh, Transdime um, I think he's incredible operator the way he kind of approaches like costs uh and you know running a manufacturing aerospace manufacturing business um it's just it's it's incredible I think when I kind of did deep dive into Transdime and there's really, some really good podcasts out there with um will Thorndike and Nick Howley highly recommend Th- there's an example of just private equity at its at its best right like it, it was a Transdime was born in lower middle market private equity right it was like a you know I think tens of millions of dollars of EV when it first kind of put together, um, it, it changed hands between three other private equity owners. Now it's public, and every single owner made a ton of money. Every private equity owner, all the employees, and each iteration of the business just got better and better and better. And today it's 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 you know it's a strong conglomerate of aerospace uh, manufacturing um, enterprises. And so um, there's an example right there, right where private equity created a ton of value. In that space for investors and employees and, and customers as well. Um, some other kind of inspirations I draw from as well. Definitely um some a couple of low-key ones that people may not have heard of, like uh Kirk Kakorian. Um, you know, I discovered him by reading the book The Gambler, which I definitely recommend. Uh he's it, it's, it's an incredible story. I love his uh his risk tolerance, his his high conviction bets. Um, he uh was in the casino and Hollywood business. He's he's also he started his career in kind of um air, air space air, um aerospace as well and uh it's just he's in and in, he in, in just in kind of reading the book like he just there's a lot of things he did through his career that you just know that he was just a great person like he you know he was highly charitable and very kind to, to all his uh, people that he worked with and all that kind of stuff so definitely uh serves sort as of inspiration and the last kind of inspiration I'll I'll, I'll add here is um someone named Reginald Lewis and um, uh, there's a book called uh, "Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun?" and um, it's a really inspiring book. It's about um, Reginald Lewis was probably the first African American to uh, enter private equity. And this was in the 80s, where this was absolutely unheard of it was a heyday of private equity, right? You have like KKR and Blackstone kind of um, doing massive deals. And you have Reginald Lewis, who's kind of like a one man shop bootstrapping deals. Uh, and uh, he he, you know, he did a, a billion dollar acquisition of Beatrice, which was like a, a food company. Um, and in, unfortunately, he, he passed away from brain cancer in, uh, in his his 50s, I believe, and if, if that hadn't happened, he today he'd be an absolute titan of private equity, and he would just definitely be probably one of the, the wealthiest uh, African Americans um, uh, today. So those are kind of some of my inspirations there. That uh, beyond kind of Mark Leonard too, that have a pretty big uh, role in shaping my kind of philosophies and business worldviews.
0: That's great. So I guess we you know we talked a lot about your business and kind of all that, but what about yourself personally? I mean, maybe it's tied to your business, but where do you see yourself in the next you know few years? Like, do you see yourself just continuing to buy businesses, or are there? Other- Other avenues of interest that you want to pursue as well?
1: Yeah, next three years. um, It's I try to review what I'm doing every year, at least like annually, like kind of look back and say, Hey, am I enjoying what I'm doing? Um, Do I like what I'm doing? Am I going to keep doing it um, for the next year? Um, And so the last couple years, it's been absolutely right. And so every time I kind of Look at all the things I'm involved with uh, in terms of you know um, Atlas View and uh, you know acquiring businesses and all that kind of stuff. The answer to that is definitely um, if I can keep doing what I'm doing right now for the next three years, I'd probably be you know thrilled, more than happy. It's uh, the idea is I want to grow the portfolio, right? We want to get to maybe like um, four, five, six businesses in the next three years. when I say four, or five, like like four, five, six new platforms, right? And and so have a nice portfolio kind of built out. Uh, work more and more closely with our portfolio companies to drive value. Um, and then, you know, maybe in the long-term scheme of things, we'll see. Like, I think like I've, I've considered maybe even doing like a holding company where we have a bit more of a buy and hold strategy, as you mentioned, um, you know, had being a big fan of Mark Leonard and also Buffett and Munger. Um, I, I see the distinct advantages of having permanent capital um, in, in in your investment strategy, right? When you don't have to return capital, in a finite period of time, you could do a lot of great things in that, in, 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 in you know, over a longer period of time. And so maybe that might be something I consider after like the three four five year mark would want to be able to post some exits on the board, post a good track record with the current portfolio companies. And, you know, hopefully the new ones that we require in the next a uh, um, uh, couple of years or so. And so um, to kind of long, long story short to answer your questions, where do you see yourself in three years? Pretty much doing the exact same thing. I'm now I'm doing now is, um you know meeting more founders uh acquiring more companies making good deals and kind of creating value in the businesses that i own
0: and you also forgot to mention i think something people would like to hear you ideally maybe want to live somewhere warm out of the winter months in canada right
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah as you as you know it's kind of hard to do that with kids and stuff and like uh you know me my wife and i talk about that uh that yeah all the time like uh Every every winter, we're like, damn, we should have uh, gone to Florida or Texas or California or something. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be a nice goal. Um, it's a bit tough too. I mean, sure, you, as you can probably relate to Ara, like all your friends and family are are here, and having to kind of pick up and move and come back, it, um, it's it's a bit tricky. So, but yeah, we'll we'll see.
0: If you had a chance to go in a time machine and visit 16 year old Jay, what would you tell him? Hmm,
1: that's a good question. Um, I would tell him basically life goes by fast enjoy every minute of it like you know not not to get too too caught up in uh where you might end up or whatever it might be like i think like like your, your 20s goes by so fast and it's like a highlight of your career and I, I and by the way i had a great time in my 20s and really enjoyed it and just kind of to i get like a confirmation saying hey make sure you, you really really enjoy your 20s make as many friends and relationships as possible um one of the things they don't tell you um when you're younger is like you know you know, through high school and through university, uh, after university finishes, it, it gets harder and harder to make new friends. And so keep the friends that uh, you're really close with and university, um, even after you graduate and, and and what have you, because you know as you get into adulthood and you know get married and have kids, it gets just harder and harder to make new friends. And so, um, so try to get as you know many high quality relationships built out, uh, um, in in university as possible, and keep in touch with them, check up on them on a regular basis. Um, what else would I say? De- definitely buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, uh, when you when, as early as you can, and uh, that's basically it, really.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love. That. Last piece of advice. Um, I read this re- a really good article called "The Tail's End." I might be messing up the title, but the premise of it is um, mathematically, you know, most people would have seen like their parents or friends. They they break down the percentages, and it's kind of like depressing. Where it's like, oh, you'd have seen your parents for 80% of your life after the age of 30. You're gonna see them, you know, out of the di- out of the hours in a day, you'll you'll see them maybe 10 to 20%. So it's kind of like based on like you visiting them once every two or three months or once a month. I forgot the number. So like I'm a very mathematically inclined person, so for me, when I read that, I was like, oh, is this math. I got to just increase the frequency I see them. It might not not all be like quality interactions, but like, I think quality comes from quantity. So um, yeah, I love that advice that you mentioned. So how about looking forward in terms of your personal legacy? How do you want to be remembered by your friends and family?
1: (laughs) Oh, man, I I never thought, I mean, I, I feel like I'm not I'm too young to think about that. Truthfully, it's kind of a morbid question. It's kind of like, hey, oh, how, after you die and you're gone forever, how do you want to be remembered? Kind of thing, right? Like uh, um I, so I haven't really thought too much about that. No, do I don't know if I really cared either. Like, I, my my kind of goal is I want to enjoy as much as my life as I'm still here, right? As opposed to worrying too much about what's gonna what what are people gonna think of me after I die. Uh, and so you know, while I'm here, I try to be as nice as possible to everyone. Um, try to have a good time, enjoy, um, try to have, you know make great memories with family, friends, wife, daughter, um, parents, uh, you know, and, and try to spend as much time with them as possible and um, you know uh, and, and work as hard as possible too. Right. I mean, like it's um, you know, work is a pretty large portion of your life uh, and so it should be enjoyable and you should be working with people that you enjoy with. And so um, I try to um, you know, have, have, have fun while, while actually um, building, build, building businesses. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of like my answer. I know it's kind of like a non-answer, but uh, I haven't really took too much thought in my legacy and nor do I really care. I'm just kind of focused on enjoying the now and really kind of living life to the fullest.
0: Yeah, I know. I definitely realize it can come off as a morbid question. I guess why I love this question is I read this book called The Five People You Meet in Heaven and it's like a fiction book, but it just made me, and now, especially as a parent, I guess, it's like I think about it more, even though obviously, like you said, we're quite, like relatively quite young. Um, I guess it just like for me, it's not like I'm thinking about legacy, but it's like, oh, if I were to, like, die tomorrow, like yeah. what would people say about me? And it's not like I care about that, but it's like, am I living the right way that I want to live um, for, the, for the most important people in my life? Um, yeah. So it's like, for me, it's like, I hope I'm, like, an MVP in terms of, like, current certain things. I hope I'm a great parent. I hope I'm yeah. like, a father. I hope I'm a good husband. I hope I'm a good son, brother, friend. Um, and, like, maybe those are the five things. I don't know. But, like, obviously, it's very broad. But yeah. I feel like it's just kind of a great reinforcement at times when I, you know, get annoyed at things or annoyed at people or maybe I'm spending too much time on like work or something that I shouldn't be. Then I'm like, is this a good waste? Is this a good spending of my time? Like, is this something that I'd be proud of? Or like if I died tomorrow, like I'd be like, I should be doing this now. So that's all it is. But no, no I definitely get your answer as well. I think your answer makes sense. Like, why think too much about death when like we're living? Right. So it's yeah. yeah. Now we're going to kind of, you know, it's a good segue into the last part of the segment uh, podcast it's a segment i like to call creative confessions it's a speed run i going to basically say a bunch of statements and you're gonna tell me the first thing that pops to mind ready jay okay i'm ready favorite tamil food uh kotoroti. something that scares you um <laughs> i don't know now it's going to be my mission to find something that scares you
1: you know what nothing uh, really pops up i'm not trying to say i'm, I'm fearless I'm, <laughs> scared. I'm scared of a lot of things but <laughs> i i don't know I'm, I'm kind of drawing blanks here i, I can we skip that one (laughs) yeah yeah uh what's an insecurity that you have uh insecurity that i have um that's another tough one. Geez, these are uh, these these fast questions are quick. Uh, OK, I'll say that an insecurity is not spending enough time with my family, both my immediate family uh, and also my my parents as well. Right. So sometimes I'm kind of thinking like, oh, shit, like maybe I should be spending way more time. Uh, just like you mentioned, right, like uh, less on business, more on, uh, more on more on family. And then I'll, then I'll regret it once it's too late. So that's definitely an insecurity that keeps me up at night sometimes.
0: Favorite TV show
1: you're watching? Oh, Yellowstone.
0: Yeah, great show. Love it. If you're an entrepreneur. You like that. It's like uh, and family, a place you're itching to travel to. Ooh, that's a good one too. Um, I
1: think South Africa. Yeah, South Africa.
0: Fellow Tamil creator, you want to give a shout out too? Uh, can I give a shout out to you? <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, favorite childhood memory. Favorite childhood memory. Um, hmm. Okay,
1: kind of most memorable moments. I think is one when, when we kind of first moved to Canada. Like many other kind of Tamil immigrants, we're living in this like tiny like one bedroom apartment and it was like above this like kind of sketchy neighborhood and i remember like the and my dad was kind of working in a business it's a piece of shop right underneath and my dad had purchased um he finally kind of saved up enough money put a down payment and purchased like a, a large house and it, and i remember when we moved into that house it felt like a, it was so big compared to the amount of room that we had um in our tiny one bedroom like two bedroom like little rinky-dink shack it felt like a castle. And I remember like just thinking, holy shit, this is so massive. What are we going to do with all this space? And like, I'll just, I'll just remember, I'll just never uh, forget that like feeling of just like crazy, it just felt like ultra luxury compared to what we were used to.
0: You know, it's crazy. Like I, I remember something like that when we moved from like a very small space to a bigger space where I think we each of me, me and my siblings had our own room, even though the space was great. Something I realized over time later, like now in my adulthood is as we got more space, the siblings got less closer in a way because <laughs> with proximity, you know, like when you're kind yeah. of forced proximity, like, you know, I think at one point, all four of us shared a room. Yeah. We, yep. so like, so we like chatted so much. And like, you know, when you have your own room, your own life, you kind of like start focusing on that more. It, it's just like, mm-hmm. just like something as you're saying that, like, that's just something that I always think about is the. I remember having your own room was awesome because you hated sharing. Like it was a, kind of annoying sharing all the time. But yeah. there is something to like when I, I live in a condo, so it's like a um, smaller space. So like I realize that that's one of the benefits, even though the less space is not ideal. But anyways, yeah, just a random thought. Something that you like to do for fun outside of work? Definitely travel. Uh, you know, both
1: my my my, my wife and myself. You know, before we had our daughter, and also after now too, we 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 will, we travel different type of travel now, more kind of family oriented travel, but. Before, like my wife and I traveled to a bunch of different exotic places around the world and stuff like that. So yeah, travel is definitely up there.
0: Favorite movie of all time. Ooh, that's a good one. Hmm. I'd probably
1: say Casino, Robert, uh mm. not Robert, yeah, Robert De Niro, right? Yeah. Um Martin Scorsese. Not only is the the movie really, really good, and it's just action-packed, and I just love it from start to finish, the book. Uh, by Nicholas Pelleggi is just equally good. Like I literally read it in like one sitting. And so yeah, definitely casino.
0: A purchase that you've made recently in the last few years that you've splurged on, but you have no regret about it. Hmm. I'm just like looking around my room right now. See if anything. <laughs> <again>. <laughs> yeah, honestly, nothing's coming up. I'm, I'm drawing blanks on this one. I was going to you... say one of your two businesses, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's my man. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, a pet peeve of yours. I think uh, a pet peeve
1: is definitely um, tardiness. I, I do get annoyed when people kind of show up late to to meetings and stuff like that, especially if it's like a scheduled meeting and people kind of show up late uh, without without uh, giving any heads up or anything like that. So that, that's a pet peeve.
0: Uh, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have? Oh, man, this is tying in a co- the point from earlier. Probably yeah. that I did
1: spend more time with my, my parents and... Uh, my my yeah mostly my parents but some my family too like my you know wife and daughter and stuff like that so it's definitely time spent uh, i think i think would be a probably a massive regret um
0: uh, a book you've read or a podcast you've listened to that you that's had an impact on you book or
1: podcast um okay Well i will give you the pot that the, the most memorable podcast part of this in the past year is the one with nick howley trans ceo on uh will Thorndike. it's probably one of the best podcasts i've ever listened to um huge impact on kind of business philosophy and kind of how i approach you know different things book oh okay i got one for you this one's actually really good i definitely the best book i read this year that had a big impact on kind of everything is um lessons from titan for the titans and it's a book that profiles like i think like 10 different companies funny enough TransDyme being one of them and it kind of, and these are all really old companies, right? That have been around for like decades. Um, and it's just kind of, it's such a great book on like, kind of like, you know, their failures and successes, how they've kind of uh, iterated over time. And it just kind of shows you, there's just so many, so much gold nuggets in that book. I, that, that one, I definitely the most impactful book I read this year.
0: What's a belief, behavior, or habit that's improved your life? Um, Oh, go,
1: definitely. Um, I should, I'll, I'll say two things. Um, Fasting in the morning. So I don't, I... I I generally kind of have a um um a fast window and don't eat until like twelve or one one p.m. Um, it kind of get, improves my focus in the mornings. I get a lot done. In fact, I could probably finish like like eighty percent of my day by the time like noon comes. Um, potentially even ninety percent. And I guess another habit is just yeah, going going to the gym regularly, right? And like it, I've been going to the gym on like a regular basis, at least like three, four, five times a week since I was like um you know like like a teenager, basically like eighteen, nineteen. So. Um, hopefully I could continue that as I get older um, for as long as possible.
0: My wife has been on me too. She's a physiotherapist and like she goes to the gym like five, six days a week. Um, I go like once. i trying to get up to like five days eventually. I, I play sports and walk. I, I'm not a gym person, but yeah. I think the value of going to the gym is important, especially as you get older, like like strength, muscle, like just strength training will be important. So it's a good habit. Um, and the final question, I guess I should have actually asked this earlier because it would have been useful like early in the conversation for folks, but if you're a business owner looking to sell your business, what's a piece of, or like, what's some advice you would give to them because they should be aware of going into the process or just what to expect from the process?
1: Yeah, good question. So a few things I'd say is, Definitely do a little bit of homework, right? You kind of want to understand where your business might be worth. I find a lot of times business owners might think their business is worth more than what the market would value it. And and it's not their fault at all because, you know, you're in the business, you see everything, you're kind of, you know, you have an affinity for it. And it's kind of like your favorite child. You're going to, you know, obviously think way more highly of your business and other uh, um, outsiders might. And so definitely get a understanding of expectations on valuations. It's a long process. If you want to sell your business, it's like a a year long process, right? So you got to find, uh, Someone and, and actually before I get into that, I'll say, and this is a little bit of shooting myself in the foot here, but I'll I'll, I'll say it regardless because I, I genuinely want the best outcome for all founders and business owners and whether it's in the best interests of Atlas View or not. But truthfully, I think you should work with an advisor. I think if you're for, if you've never done a transaction before in your life, never gone through the M&A process, you definitely should work with like a broker or like a middle, a lower middle market investment banker. Um, you should do your due diligence on them, see what other types of companies they sold for what multiples, they'll give you all that information. And so definitely work with an advisor, a good advisor is worth their weight in gold. And so do a bit of homework and do a bit of legwork here to get good representation on the advisory side. The last point is it takes a while to sell your business, right? So make sure you have all your documentation ready, because they're, you know, a good advisor will ask you for things like, you know, your your financials, your contracts, document everything, right? Like a like, if, it, if it's not documented, it just doesn't exist, right? It's hard to DD it, right? Like, if you have agreements with suppliers or customers, like... Get it documented, right? Like have a annual renewal or whatever, biannual, whatever it might be. The more documents you can kind of compile in an organized matter, the easier it will be to sell your company, right? And so um, have everything kind of documented, prepared um, in a you know organized manner, um, and the and get ready for a year long process, right? Because like just do the math here, right? So you know in order to kind of get the whole DD, you get you contact a bank, you do a, a few re- you research a few different brokers, you find one you like they're going to do DD on you cuz they're going to represent you and they're going to make sure they need to make sure that you have all your materials ready ask for your financials, tax returns, documents, whatever. That process might take you up to a couple months, right? I and mean, sometimes it might even take a, a 3 months, right? Like I've seen um you know, depending on how clean your books are and how clean everything is. Oh, that's another thing. Keep your books very clean. Hire a CPA um to to do your kind of your your financials, even if there's no audit or review or anything like that, just have it CPA prepared. Um, because it'll it'll come in handy when you go actually sell your your business, having clean books here. Because that's pretty much one of the, especially in the lower middle market, that's probably got to be one of like the, the, the biggest deal killers. Is like if you don't know what what your revenue and profit is, how are you supposed to uh communicate that to a potential buyer, right? So um so it might take two, three months to get you out to a broker to get you out to market. From there, you're going to talk to a bunch of different sellers, broker, a good broker will line up, you know, several conversations, get you a bunch of offers. Then you sign one, uh, sign an offer, right? That process makes, might take like two, three months, right? So now you're looking at a total of like six months and the buyer is going to have at least, you know, another 60 days to 90 days to actually do perform deeper due diligence, check all your documents, put together the financing, whatever it might be, close the deal. Now you're basically up to like nine months to potentially a year, right? So, um, so it's a it's not something that you can do in a, in a, in a pinch, right? You can't just go kind of like, Oh, I'm going to sell my company and boom, it's sold tomorrow. It's not like a piece of real estate where you list it on, you know, MLSC or whatever it's called. And, um, uh, or MLS, sorry, And, uh, uh, sell it within like 30 days or something. It's going to take a year. It's going to take us all to put, you should carve out a year to sell your business in order to get uh, the outcome that you'd like. And so those are some of the things I'd probably advise. And if it, by the way, if, any business owners are uh, listening to this, especially if you're in software or some sort of technical business. You can know, always feel free to reach out to me. I'm, um, you, um, you know, Ara, uh, you and I chat all the time about this, and uh, you know, we we, 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 I'm more than happy to talk with any other founder about you know potentially selling the business, uh, a bit of strategy, finance, MA, whatever it might be. Feel always feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to have a conversation and help.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Jay. That's like a good way to end off the podcast. I mean, appreciate you jumping on. This is a great episode, lots of gold nuggets, especially for entrepreneurs and especially for folks that as they, you know, think about eventually the day they want to sell or, you know, just how to think about it. So appreciate that, Jay. Thanks for jumping on. And, you know, for the audience um, that's, that's listening, appreciate you guys for listening as always.
1: Appreciate you having me, Ara. This was a, this was a great pleasure.